Hi, this is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, brought to you by UBS. This podcast is very much a product of the pandemic, and today's episode, Falling Well into Season 2, actually marked the first long interview that I conducted in person. It's somehow fitting, then, that our guest is Basel architect Jacques Herzog, and that we spoke a stone's throw from where he grew up. In 1978, Jacques founded Herzog Demeron with his childhood friend Pierre Demeron. But their big breakthrough was the Tate Modern Museum, which opened in the year 2000. Since then, the duo have built major museums all over the globe, each with a very different character. Architecture encompasses many disciplines, so this episode ranges broadly, and the topics include the end of the Starkitect era, their close collaboration with artists as different as Remy Tsaug and Ai Weiwei, the ways in which new art forms require new spatial strategies, and the danger of getting locked into a style, no matter how successful. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you do, please review and favorite Intersections wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. I'm sitting here today with Jacques Herzog, and as always, because this is a podcast, I think it's important to know, Jacques, where are we sitting today? What do you see around you? I sit right in front of this iconic brick building of the 1950s that has been home for Art Basel since its early days. Next to it is this aluminum-clad facade of the um, Messe that we did some 10 years ago that is now home for Unlimited and also Design Miami is there. And what else? I see some tramways and I see people on the Messe Platz and the fountain in front of it. You've built buildings all over the world, but obviously you started, you grew up in Basel. And I'm curious, where did you grow up specifically in Basel? two blocks down from here, really, literally spoken. So not only I'm from Basel, but I'm literally actually from this Messe neighborhood. At the corner of the Messe Platz, this little park, and across the street, the Kunstgewerbeschule, the art school, that was built in my teenage years. And that's actually where I first discovered architecture as something interesting and also art, because they were casting in concrete reliefs by Jean Arp, which impressed me without knowing who he was. So that was an early art experience and architectural experience that happened right in front of my home door. You've done a lot of your signature buildings here in Basel. Obviously, the Signal House, the Schallager building, Vitra House just across the border in Weil am Rhein, the halls which we're looking at now. Is it different? to build? Is there a different pressure or feeling or experience after the opening when you build in your hometown, in a town where you've chosen to stay when you could have chosen to move anywhere in the world? We wanted to stay because we like to live here. We have our friends here and we always also had a plan for what the city could become to transform the city into a three-national metropolitan area. And many of our projects are like puzzle pieces of that vision, of that idea. And it's quite amazing to see that quite many buildings are fragments of something that could come together. So all these things, it's like, how do you say, the sandbox, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as trillion that we could use to do a lot of things here. So yes, it is different. 
And what is also different is we are less welcome here. We have more bad press here than anywhere else in the world. And that was not always easy, but you get used to that. And it has to work with the kind of a potential of transformation so it could become a piece of architecture, could grow into something else. And we have now reached a certain age where some of the buildings will be transformed probably during our lifetime. Winding it back just a little bit, as I understand it, you met Pierre Demeron, who became your lifelong business partner very early on. Was he a neighbor of yours? Yeah, he lived two blocks further down. And so we had the same way from home to school. I have to say, in three decades of knowing about you and in 15 years of being at Art Basel, I never realized that you came from just so close by. I'm not sure anybody else comes from so close by. I read in doing the research that you and Pierre were the kinds of kids who were doing Legos and drawings and models, and you were very much into the physicality, the crafts, the arts. Is that right? I was a bit impatient. Pierre was more, let's say, craft-oriented. But it's true that we um, played, I did dresses that I glued on top of the dolls of my sister because I was interested in dressing them and I doing things. But I wanted to do it with as little let's say, physical impact or craftsmanship-based impact as possible. So you were sort of an intuitive minimalist. I was more interested in concept than in actually doing things with the hands. But they should have a tactile, sensual quality. That was important. That's certainly something that I shared with Pierre since the early days. But as a kid, you do things together and you're not aware of those things. It works or it doesn't work. And obviously, Pierre and I are so different characters, different people, different talents that we sort of found each other. And, you know, as a child, you trust the other. You have a very good instinct, I think, with people who help you grow or do things together that you couldn't do by yourself alone. So I think that was an early experience that we share. History has shown that you grew to be business partners in one of the most successful architectural practices in the world. At the time that you and Pierre were growing up in this very neighborhood, Art Basel didn't exist, but art in Basel was very important. And I'm curious what the art scene in Basel was like for you, how you felt it growing up, and to what extent the Kunstmuseum and other institutions played a role in your boyhood and adolescence? Since I'm not coming from an art or architecture background at all, I really wonder how, I, how this fascination for art came across. I was also very interested in science and started actually in chemistry and biology before then stopping and going to architecture because I felt this could be a field where, let's say, you could combine several talents like language or drawing and intellectual conceptual work. So earlier on in the teenage years, it's true that I went to the Kunstmuseum and I was very attracted by the atmosphere in that building, but I really wouldn't know why. It was the 60s, the 68 was uh, when we finished school. So it was really in this moment where society was changing or let's say that new moments came in like feminism, socialism. So philosophy and all these things were very much on the table. 
so the interest in art was very strongly connected to sociology. Lucius Burkhardt is from Basel, he's a super famous sociologist, kind of um, co-founder almost of the Green Party, Avant Lettre. That's why I was also, also so fascinated by you, Joseph Beuys, who, coming back to the Kunstmuseum, was promoted by the Kunstmuseum by Koeplin very early on, just as other fields of interest, like minimalism from Donald Judd, also a very intellectual kind of artist, was presented very early. So that was very fascinating for me to see his drawings, the way he was drawing. He was connecting drawing to doing objects that were actually strange and ugly and not really something that you would expect to be art. And in those days, for people who are younger who listen to that, people can hardly believe that this was so. But in fact, that was not considered to be art. What Boyce was doing, what Judd was doing, that was radical. And no other museum, no other city in Switzerland would dare to say, we buy such a piece of art, make it part of a public collection. And that's what happened with Boyce and that's what happened with Judd. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses, and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at UBS.com collecting. And now back to the show. I want to talk about the relationship between art and architecture a little bit later in the podcast. But first, I want to set the stage for people who don't know all the details of your career. And obviously, it would take hours to go into much depth. But what were the breakthrough projects? I think of the Signal House as something which got a lot of attention. But then maybe the big breakthrough that, that I'm conscious of is Tate Modern, of course. Is that right? And if so, maybe you could talk a little bit about the projects. And if there are other projects that you think were big breakthroughs, then obviously feel free to add them in. I think all the early projects were important to enter into that field to understand what could be your contribution into architecture. Because again, going back to the 60s and 70s, modernism was weakening. Instead of gray and concrete and steel columns, this kind of pristine way that we would have known about Mies van der Rohe, Everything was getting bronze and olive and orange and that kind of, you know, we found it so terrible. And then on the other hand was the kind of coming up of postmodernism, this kind of decorative form of postmodernism, like Richard Meyer and Hans Hollein. They all did museums that we would have liked to do. And since we were very close to artists, we knew that the artists hated that kind of postmodernism-based <laughs> approach to museums. So we could understand or define what we wanted to be in understanding or saying what we didn't want to do. We didn't want to do that kind of decorative approach. So the early projects were early attempts to define a different approach. For instance, we were very interested in banality as a topic, that we find beauty in banal everyday objects. And we had several ingredients that we found also in artwork, like in Judd's work, but also in new ways to understand materials, such as boys, for whom copper was not just 
a nice material with a nice surface, but he was teaching us that there is more than just what you see. It is hidden, inherent qualities in materials that light phase conductibility. And finally, the first example, perhaps anywhere in the world of minimal architecture. I also use that term of minimalism for that building. And I took it from Judd, of course, specificity and minimalism. Both terms that we find highly relevant for architecture. Specific is something that is connecting itself with the site, with a given site, because each yeah. site on the world is different, is bound to be there forever, and has a big potential to do something, an object that you build on it, different and more specific, almost like its own DNA, its own character. That kind of thinking was... What we start to develop, learning from art and learning from, let's say, everyday life here, the banality of everyday. So that was a mixture that made us learn from all these ingredients. And the first time that, let's say, the first maybe building where we had a certain clarity and precision and it became obvious what we wanted was the Goetz Gallery in Munich, you know, mm -hmm. this um, plywood box that was super refined. And also that was really new then, you know, that... All materials were flush, the glass, the wood, everything, whether it's structural or non-structural, it was really a kind of a reinvention of modernism. And I mentioned this building because I know that without having done that, we would never have been given the Tate because Nick Sorota saw that building and he saw that this was a totally different understanding of what architecture and space could be for artists. Did you ever involve artists not just as people who informed your notion about what museums should be, but actually involving them in the sense of having them look at models, having them look at spaces, having them look at renderings and say, how do you see this as an artist? We were in very close contact with especially Remy, Remy Rimsa, and later Ai Weiwei. Those two were the ones that were, let's say, the most intellectually prepared and willing to have this kind of exchange. I think we, especially with Jaugend, and we, we always had fun. So we were not being artists or architects. We were just a group of people who liked to travel together across China or France and discuss sites and things. And we also discussed about their artwork. So it was really kind of an innocent collaborations. And I'm also very close, I feel very close to Mucha Prada, with whom we've done several things. And she's a fashion designer, I'm an architect, but you don't really think of that when you are developing something, because then you're just hot on that topic, yeah. you know, and that's it. So I couldn't give you any specific moment, but it's just interesting to be with interesting people and open-minded people and inspired people and to inspire people and hopefully make a difference. That's all I ask for. Clearly as architects, we wanted to use projects ideally to find out what architecture could be in a given site each time. And when I spoke about being inspired, I want to be surrounded by inspired people. That's also something for me is very important to introduce or infuse creativity everywhere and to encourage people to see whatever they do in such a way, because it makes everything so much nicer to be more careful with each other. And so ideally on a good day, you feel that your company has, even the people who do the kind of maintenance, all that is an atmosphere we want to create for our work that makes the work at the end of the day what it is. I need to be surrounded by such a, let's say, openness and field of um, 
inspired and creative people. That's why it was also a good way. That was also, let's say, logical almost that we love to work with artists because I have never had a problem laying things on the table yeah. and being afraid of losing my own style because I don't have a style. I don't give a shit, sorry to say that, about style as something that I would need to freeze or to hold in my hands and say, this is mine. Less I do this, more I have a good day. It's interesting. There are two things that strike me about your museums. And of course, after the Tate came many, many more museums, the Walker in the States, the Schaulager nearby here in Basel, the Kaiser Forum in Madrid, the de Young in San Francisco, the Perez Art Museum in Miami. And I think there are two things that strike me about all of the museums of yours that I visited. One is that they are very good places for art. And without naming names, there are a lot of architects who have built sculptures, which are not very good for displaying art within. They are sculptures, testaments to their ego or the ego of the people paying for the project, but not necessarily great places to see art. So on the one hand, I think your buildings have been very consistently artist and artwork friendly. And then on the other hand, the buildings are very distinct from each other. And I'm curious how it was that for each of your museums, you developed a kind of specificity to it and how important it was to you that each museum didn't feel like a clone or even necessarily a sibling, but maybe part of an extended family of the same type of thinking about art and how it should be shown. As I said, we learned a lot from Remy, who at the beginning, like the very small gallery for the Guts collection, was based on minimalism and doing spaces which were really pure, which then had certain consequences of how the wall touches the floor and the wall touches the ceiling and how the light should be. And that tends to be very rigorous and tends to become boring after a while. And I learned, for instance, something, also Tate was an amazing um, quarry of learning. When we worked on the tanks, on the oil tanks, you know, we understand that digging out the ground means that you have an archaeological kind of foundation that would give art a space that is very specific in itself. So it's not ideal for art if you define looking at art in an ideal condition, which defines the distance you have as a view from the wall, etc. So all that stuff was collapsing as soon as you started to understand spaces as an obstacle. You would never want to have a museum where obstacles are all around. But since this, this is an exception because it's such a great building. And if an artist comes now, she can, let's say, adapt to those strange conditions, but it's not an ideal museum. So in a really great museum of today, and I think M plus maybe comes close to that model, you have these kind of ideal spaces and you have the non-ideal, you have the found, you have the kind of weird, you have the kind of obstacle kind of spaces, the quasi spaces, because also art forms have been changing. I mean, if you look back 30 years, art tends to grow more and more. Art tends to go to spaces which are so strange and so weird. No artist would have liked to put his art or her art in such a condition as artists do today. So very naturally, we had to learn from that or watch that process. I'm curious, you built the Tate was 2000 was the opening. In 2000, right? And M plus is two decades later. How different a function does a museum that opens in 2022 have from a museum that opens in 2000? 
I think it's a very good question because it's probably also what you as the director of the Art Basel is asking yourself. The whole art market, how artists work, how architects work, how the politics interfere, how as our society growing, that all comes together. When it's a public museum, I think it's very important so we don't lose younger generations, that we make museums attractive for young people without turning them into pure entertainment platforms. So what's the chance? How do we do this? How do we make it socially sustainable and ecologically sustainable? Ecologically sustainable means that we have to use photovoltaic elements and all that. That's kind of boring or that's kind of almost self-evident. You have to do that. We have to use less concrete and that's in contradiction to some degree to a museum which needs to protect art and deal with climate control issues and all these things. So there's a lot of conflict in this. But since we work now in the National Gallery, in uh, National Gallery in 20th century for Berlin, these questions are super relevant. What can we do to make it a credible project for the current government, which is a socialist, Green Party, and all together these people have to be sure they build a museum which costs a lot of money for the people of today. I know by now what we want to do. We want to do a museum where literally you can put art and people everywhere. It's like I compare this to that butcher tradition from nose to tail. I love that because it's not acceptable anymore that you do something, whether it's just behavior or whether it's doing a building or whether it's cooking, where you throw away stuff. You make a difference between what is useful, what is not useful, what is serving and what is being served. All that needs to be organic more. It makes atmospheres in the museum better. It's more attractive for young people. You know, they can hang around. I think in that way, the Tate Modern is still a model, you know, mm -hmm. because the Turbine Hall, you can walk through it. The city is in the museum and the yeah. museum is in the city. So that idea of making it really public and accessible for all is, I hate to say this, this is a very democratic approach. Yes, that is, that's what it is. And I think in these days we live today, it's very important we insist on that. But museums are a relevant public architecture when it comes to define that kind of society we want. It's funny, about 30 years ago, I wrote for Metropolis, the architecture magazine, about how skateboarders were using the Mies van der Rohe plazas in Chicago because it fit very well the type of skateboarding that was done at the time, which was highly technical. I was at the Public Hotel recently, which was one of your projects. And as you may or may not be aware, the escalator going up from the street in the lobby now is the site of an almost constant flurry of guerrilla Instagram influencer shoots because of the mirrors, because of the escalator. And I'm curious how you... And the golden glow. And the golden glow. I mean, it's just a perfect background for a TikTok video. Right. And there are constantly people changing costumes, getting escorted out by the security guard. The moment a building opens, it starts to get used. I'm curious what it's like for you as an architect when you realize that people are using the building in completely unexpected ways. Are you amused? Are you perturbed? Is it a mix of both? Does it depend on how it's being used? It's more that. I think when we said what we said before about the public accessibility, making buildings public, making buildings attractive for young people, for everybody, then obviously you have to accept this kind of organic life transforming your stones or yeah. your platform, your hardware. So that's part of the game. 
as a young architect, I would have been frightened because that would have ruined the whole concept because you didn't know what architecture is and how you could control it. And now that we have this reputation of being architects working worldwide, we've been given commissions which have this more public realm. So we have to find ways to deal that. And in fact, that's a good test. As a young architect, I hated photographs where you saw people. Mm-hmm. And now I hate photographs where you don't see people. I love the people. They are like performers who inform you as a viewer or of a picture what that building is, in fact. It's interesting because I think perhaps when you started at the beginning of your career, museums were elite institutions giving their imprimatur to whatever was in it. And now I think today's museums, almost regardless of where they are in the world, are, as you said, really meant to be democratic institutions, which are part of their neighborhood, part of their city, open to everybody, and not just open to everybody, but also bringing in everybody, attracting everybody. Did you feel the shift in thinking about museums suddenly or gradually? Gradually, I think that I understand it better now. I don't know whether I can do it better. I hope. And I think this um, necessity to make museums really, really sustainable, and that's a kind of social sustainability, to make them really buildings for everybody, is something we do now with even more clarity and more conviction than we were able to do it in the past. I don't do this because I want to be a nice guy and want to be politically correct. If we didn't do it, the museum would die. The building would be rejected. I would be a ridiculous architect. So it's not a moral necessity. It's something which we need to do in order to survive. We have to survive if we believe that art and architecture can still play a role today. So here's a question that I have, because we've talked a lot, and you're only the second architect to be on this show, about the different metabolisms of different art forms. In comparison with music, the visual arts, fashion, dance, design, architecture has an enormous longevity. So how do you try to address today's issues while future-proofing your museum? It seems like a very intellectually challenging thing to build a museum that's there for the ages and that will still be relevant long after all of our deaths, but that doesn't feel like a monument the day that it opens. I have a very clear idea about that paradox or conflict. I think you have to always do a building which is right now which is right for this moment in time. It should be done with no bullshit, superfluous, decorative uh, things, but it should have a certain robustness, also intellectual robustness. What I said before is not any blah, blah, but it's, you know, to make a space which is open for the public and has benches that people can hang around, etc. That will be good now and even in the future. As long as we are still humans in the sense that we are today, I think that something that has been done in a given time, whether it's now or 10 or 20 or 50 years ago, will always be able to be adapted to a transformation in a good way. You can take many historic examples to prove that. The Kunstmuseum in Basel is very elitist. You have this kind of patio, you have this kind of entrance, bronze entrance door. With art, and with the way you curate it, with the way you have gastronomy in it, you can always adapt it and mm. make it more contemporary, more accessible. Another example is the Royal College in London. You know, mm. it's a very traditional building, but I think it's a great contemporary museum also. So I don't see this as a conflict. 
if I worried about how could that be now in 20 years from now, I'm already lost. That makes sense. The era of the architect was also the era of the supermodel. And people say that the era of the supermodel is over. And I'm curious, given how people are thinking in general about elitism, about diversity, about democracy, whether you feel the architect era is over. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I totally agree. And I feel relieved about that new area we live in now. In fact, there are so many different problems in the world that if there is a new building that opens, you know, there was huge press and there was always this discussion about iconic building and never before we saw this or that. If you look into newspapers, newspapers have lost their influence. Art critics have lost their influence. So also the talk about art, not only architecture, has totally lost because the world has totally changed, has transformed that, has sidelined all this kind of bullshit about iconic and whatever. Today, it's much more this discussion of what could be the contribution of architecture to build a society. I think the shift will go from architecture to the city much more. And the city is the real field. We have to really be sure of such a stupid thing as simply grow more trees unseal asphalt streets. Every tree that you plant, every unsealed surface will be a tremendous contribution in the cities that heat up in the future. We will witness that in Basel, in Switzerland, everywhere. And there is much more that kind of thinking. How can we deal with urban mobility, with social inequality, with all these things? And they are architectural to some degree, but they are more urbanistic and social. So very clearly, the new star is the city, is not the single iconic building, except for if they help make a city more important more, or more right or more helping to work it better, to make it more accessible. And in that context, the museum can still be a relevant contribution. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also true that we live maybe in an era of iconoclasm versus icons. And I think the museum operates in a radically different context than it did before. You know, before, people would say, this is a pretty building, this is a beautiful building, this is an ugly building. And now the question is, which artists are going to be inside it? Who's on the board? Who shouldn't be on the board? Where did this artwork come from? Jacques, what was the first artwork that you remember seeing? The first one that I really was not even aware it was an art it was this sculpture I mentioned before when I was probably 14 or 15, the ARP that was being cast in place right across the street. I lived this this kind of column, the vertical column, and this kind of perforated wall carved out that turned out to be a, a Jean Arp public artwork. That certainly is one of the early ones I had a very direct personal relation to because it was built where before was a farm, a leftover of an earlier part of the city. So that came together with a radical transformation of a part of the city plus a piece of architecture that I admired because it was radically modern. It's still now, I think, is a good piece of architecture and a nice uh, piece of public art. And the latest great work, I was in the Escorial uh, 10 days ago and I was never inside the Escorial, and I saw some of the most amazing El Grecos. I didn't know they had so much El Grecos, and I was especially paying attention because there is an upcoming show, El Greco and Picasso, in the art museum here. And I saw 
El Greco before in Toledo, this famous altarpiece, and I saw some in the Prado, but it somehow struck me to see it in that very intimidating work of architecture, which was built as a reaction against Reformation. So this very rigorous, almost aggressive building and these amazing artworks, that was a very powerful impression that at art, even if it's 500 years old, still has now on a viewer. Jacques, thanks so much for your time and for speaking so directly about all of the topics flowing around art and architecture. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.